You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So tonight is an IPF night, and we did the basic um, <clears throat> investigation of uh, imagining ideal parent figure, uh, mother, uh, imagining ideal parent figure, father, and then imagining ideal place, and then doing a small amount of exploration. Tonight, what I'm going to do is to go through a, a more extended version where we're going to include the, the five um, um, stages of the development of secure relationships. And, um, and I, I won't have time to go into it in much detail in the meditation, so I thought I would give you a little uh, a primer on it, and then we'll do the meditation. <clears throat> Secure relationships are based on a ground of reliability. And the reliability level in secure relations is such that you don't worry about whether the other person is going to show up. You just assume that they will. That level of surety in it. In insecure relationships, there's always some doubt, always some anxiety about whether the other person will show up or not. And that, uh, in some sense, becomes quite um, um, thrilling. If you... Uh, make it a, a, an appointment with somebody and you're not sure whether they're going to show up, you get a whole blast of assortment of neurochemicals while you're waiting for them to come. And if they do show up, you get this huge blast of chemicals. <clears throat> and so people can get quite hooked into that kind of response in a relationship. It also uh, uh, gives you space not to have to rely completely, not to have to open up completely in the relationship, so it's a protection against vulnerability. One of the things about insecure relationships is that the, that conditioning in early childhood around what it's like to be totally vulnerable makes you reluctant to do it. And so if you can justify not having to do it, it, it relieves you of having to investigate what it would like to be, what it would be like to be vulnerable and what you might have to do to be able to become vulnerable. It's a, in some sense a hedge. You don't ever actually have to investigate that because you're not in a position where you would be willing to do it anyway. So that reliability piece is there. And really, in the beginning of this, if you want uh, your ticket into secure relationships, reliability is the ticket. If you don't have that ticket, you're not going to be able to get uh, uh, secure relationships to happen because uh, secure people won't be in relationship to you. They don't see a need to do that. Imagine growing up so that your view is that you're totally capable of getting your needs met and the world is filled with people who will meet your needs. How much time are you going to spend on somebody who's not reliable and, and you don't know whether they're going to show up or not? You won't even, you don't really even consider it. It doesn't make sense to you. Why would you make a commitment to do something and, that you didn't intend to do? Why would you make a commitment to something and not do it? It just doesn't, they don't, they're like baffled. <clears throat> and then they move on to somebody who will. 
So the first piece is making yourself reliable. And then the second piece is mutual uh, care and relationships or collaborative relationships. This requires you to be willing to join into a two-person psychology system instead of reserving yourself in a one-person psychology system. That you have to put the needs of the relationship uh, in the foreground and your personal needs secondary to that in that relationship, Diane. Um, you have to, another way to put it is you have to be conscious of making pro-relationship choices. And in collaborative relationships, there's no loser. Everything needs to be negotiated so that both parties feel that it's a win. As soon as you're in a situation where there's a, a, a power dynamic where one person can a win and the other person can be left to lose, then the relationship is in jeopardy because the other person will feel it's unjust. And uh, we're very moral creatures, as I said earlier, and we re require a sense of fairness and a sense of justice in mutual relationships. If you have those two things in place, what begins to arise out of the out of the connection to the other person is epistemic trust. You believe that they're telling you the truth and you believe that they have your best interest in mind when they say and do things. That's fundamental to that basic level of trust. If you don't believe that the person is telling you the truth or that you think you're being manipulated by them so that they can get something from you, you don't trust them and you reserve the vulnerability you reserve the expression of intimacy from them. Maybe you become manipulative yourself <clears throat> to get what you want, and then you would be two single-person psychology systems trying to get the need met uh, from the other person. Making primarily pro-self-choices uh, pro and not pro-relationship choices, and so the relationships are unstable or don't function in a secure way. If you do have that epistemic trust forming uh, on, uh, on the, the, that first step up, then what you're willing to do is to empathetically attune to the other person without defense. Uh, empathy is, um, I like to talk about it in three levels. There's different ways of talking about it. The first level of empathy is where you respond uh, to witnessing somebody else's physical or emotional pain. It's a visceral response. You hear tires screeching, you hear the bang of metal, and you wince uh, in an empathetic response to the potential of somebody else uh, being harmed. The second level is where you can look at somebody's external presentation and interpret the meaning of it so that you can read the facial expression and body language and understand that it means something, that it's a representation of their internal state. And the third level of empathy, which we in Buddhism call compassion, compassionate empathy, is where you actually feel in your body a facsimile of their internal experience that you can track in, in your body. <clears throat> we use the second and third level of empathy uh, to, to evaluate whether somebody is telling us the truth. Does our interpretation of their external presentation match our felt sense of them? If you're not empathetic 
then in some sense you're blind to this and you have to accept a teleological view of what they're presenting to you and what it means to you. But if you can allow somebody uh, to attune to you and you're willing to attune to them and then you're willing to be authentic in your presentation to them, then what results from that is this deep sense of being seen by them. If you feel safe, then you're willing to risk the vulnerability of being seen by presenting it to them. If you feel unseen, it's because you're not presenting yourself. <clears throat> um, if you are presenting yourself, it's because the other person is blind, but it goes in that sequence, right? Most of us, um, particularly on the uh, disorganized end of things, uh, hide behind an invisibility cloak and then feel wretched that nobody can see us. And we have so much agency in being, out, being willing to reveal ourselves so that the other person can see us. If, the, if we can reveal ourselves and the other person can see us, then the, the, there's a strong empathy that forms between us. Then what begins to happen is the, the emotional co-regulation between two people. Uh, you take in, you know, compassion practice in Buddhism is being willing to hold the suffering experience of someone else. You take in their suffering, you bring your emotional regulation skills to it, uh, settle it in your body, and then you send it back to them empathetically, and that begins to regulate them. And this exchange back and forth of empathetic experience is what creates this uh, <coughs> mutual uh, co-regulating experience, this soothing experience of the other. And then the, the last main component of these is a felt sense of delight. That when you see the other person, they light up with delight in seeing you and you can take that in. That you're the person who elicits delight in someone else. Why does this happen? Because you feel safe, you feel seen, and you're emotionally regulating for the other person and so that they know when they see you in 10 minutes they're going to be emotionally regulated and so they delight in that idea. But you also know that in 10 minutes you're going to be emotionally regulated so when you see them you light up with delight. So there's this mutual exchange of the possibility of delight in the other. <coughs> the thing about delight is that secure people know it because that's always the experience that they've had. One, you know, do you ever get the sense when I talk about this that it's easier for secure people? <laughs> Guess what? It's easier for secure people. <laughs> um, <clears throat> imagine a childhood where Every time you ran up to your caregiver, they delighted in having you. How's that? But that was their experience, so that's what they expect. It baffles them that you don't delight in them. They, they're confused by that. <laughs> what, what's wrong with this situation? <coughs> but if you grow up to be a dismissing adult, then the, the delight you received from, from your caregivers was conditional on your performance. If you did well, they delighted in you, and if you didn't, they didn't. I remember my friend Tommy Fogel, uh, who 
won second All-State in the state of Illinois in gymnastics all around. Really hard to, to do. And he ran up to his father with this giant second place trophy and he gave it to him and his father threw it on the ground and said, where's my first place trophy? <clears throat> no delight there. Um, not secure individual. So, um, totally conditional. His father would have been totally delighted to accept the first place trophy. Uh, preoccupied people, uh, have very little experience of delight. In fact, they have so little experience of delight that they don't really even track it most of the time because their main way of connecting to people is by being helpless or finding a problem that needs to be dealt with immediately. How delighted are you to see somebody who is helpless and demands that you solve a problem for them? <laughs> Not that delighted. <laughs> In fact, if you see them, you duck around the corner as fast as you can. <laughs> they don't even, uh, most of the time, know to track delight. So you have to begin that process of identifying who delights in you, because people will delight in you. Everybody's, uh, in many ways, delightful. Um. <coughs> And in the particular places that you need to see the delight is when you go out to explore and when you come back from exploring. If they're delighted to support you, to push you, to, to, to go to the edge of what's important to you, to explore because they know the value it has to you and they're encouraging of that. And then you go off and explore, and then when you come back, they're delighted to see you and can't wait to hear what happened. Then that creates this, this dynamic of secure functioning relationships. But if they don't want you to go because they're afraid to be separated from you and they undermine your exploration, there's no delight there. And then when you come back, they're punishing because you've left them. Uh, it makes uh, exploring in that relationship harder. And if you curtail your exploration to take care of that unwarranted need in them, then you begin to resent them for having to curtail your exploration. And then uh, that sense of dissatisfaction you have from not exploring, you, you send their way because you feel that they're making you do it. Is that making sense? Now, <clears throat> In adult relationships, we've usually picked somebody who represents in some ways the, the experience of the, the parenting that we have because that's who glows for us. We have a, an evolutionary shorthand. Uh, the body-mind looks at somebody else, evaluates the care that they're likely to give you, and if it matches close enough to the care that you received as a child, they glow. How did they glow? Your eyes dilate and they, it lets in more light. It's actually a biological thing that happens. You recognize the pattern of care, your eyes dilate and the person glows. What happens when the person glows in the center because more light is coming in? Everything around the edges fades out and they're the only one that you see. They're the only option that you see. <coughs> This is a good thing if you had good enough caregiving because then you can walk into a room and spot all the secure people. 
But if you didn't, what you're walking into a room is spotting the same crappy care that you got. <laughs> Not so pessimistic. Uh, because you can use this to not introduce yourself to the people that glow. <laughs> yeah, this is what, <laughs> there's multiple definitions to I love you, come keep going. Love. The first is a, a self mantra, I love you, keep going to yourself. The second is a mantra to someone else, I love you, keep going, that's supportive. And then when you see somebody who glows the way your crappy childhood glows, you can say, I love you, keep going. <laughs> and then we had a fourth meeting added recently, which was if you're in an amorous encounter and somebody's doing well, you can say, I love you, keep going. <laughs> We're looking for a fifth, so if it comes to you, let me know. Um, and it, so what we do is we map our adult relationships to see what kind of patterning is happening. But then we also need to understand that this is mapping onto the original conditioning of when we were children. And so in the ideal parent figure protocol, what we're attempting to do is imagine these secure functioning encounters with our ideal parent figures. And I want to emphasize this again. We are not attempting to create some, you know, a razzmatazz fantasy life here <clears throat> because, uh, and we're not attempting to replace or change what actually happened. That did happen. We know that that happened. Um, we're not attempting to fog the mind. What we're attempting to do is create these pristine entries of what uh, secure functioning would be because the database, the perceptual database, doesn't care whether it happened or whether you can imagine it. When it uses that information to determine uh, the next thing to do, right? If you can imagine an ideal outcome, if you can imagine the thing that you've always wanted, then when the body-mind goes through the process of uh, perception of the present moment, part of that uh, perceptual process is what to do in response to the present moment conditions. It can use that pristine entry in the database to formulate a response to the present moment, which means you can respond differently to the present moment based on these pristine entries into the perceptual database and just automatically respond in a different way in the present moment, in a way that's functionally secure. So that you begin to make, through that automatic process, secure choices, rather than choices based on the actual conditioning that you experienced. That's making sense, right? In some sense, uh, and I think you were beginning to see this, that you bump up against the limitations of your imagination where you've pinched them off. And then we want to begin to pull the pinches off so that the imagination can then open again to the different kinds of possibilities. Uh, often uh, what we do is limit our, our, um, 
our, our knowledge of what we really want. <clears throat> we limit to ourselves the knowledge of what we really want because in childhood to imagine that was so painful that we couldn't do it anymore. But if you have limited too much of that now as an adult, you don't know what you want. You don't know what to go after. You can't tell whether you like something or don't like something, whether you want something or don't want something. Uh, and that's because you've limited this imagination. And so we really want to push hard into reopening it. And this you'll begin to notice in the exploration pieces of the meditation. We're not going to be able to get to too much exploration tonight, but we will later in the week. Um, <clears throat> you'll get to a precipice where it's time to go explore and you won't be able to come up with anything. No idea what to do. No idea what step to take. And uh, you don't, don't want to withdraw from that moment. You want to stay in it and push in to see if you can get the, the pinches to pop off and open up the possibility. Even if it's just, I know for myself when I was doing it, I could get to the, the, the bottom step of the front steps of the house I grew up in, but I couldn't get myself to step off onto the sidewalk. And I just stayed there, trying to figure out what to do with the ideal parent figures then supporting me to, to make the choice but not making it until I could <laughs> open up that capacity to understand what to do next. Any questions before we do the meditation? Okay, here we go. <coughs> So I just want you to settle into the body, bringing your attention to the body, closing the eyes, scanning through the body, looking for any tension you might be holding, seeing if you can release it. So slowly moving through the body. Releasing any tension. And when you've gone through the body, then bring your attention to the breath. See if you can extend each out breath a little bit longer than the one before it. Deeply relaxing the body-mind. Extending each out-breath. No attention at all to the in-breath. Just let it do whatever it does. Deeply relaxing the body-mind. So now what I'd like you to do is imagine your ideal mother figure, someone different than your family of origin. It's not based on your actual mother or mother figure. 
Uh, it's not based on anyone you've known. It's a completely imaginary ideal mother figure who's perfectly suited to you. Notice how sensitively attuned she is to you, how she can track the subtlest changes in your mind states, and how she consistently responds to you in exactly the way that you need her to, in exactly the way that you've always wanted someone to. Notice that she's able to express physical affection for you in a way that's perfectly suited to you. If you need more space, she's sensitive to that and gives it to you. And if you need close contact, she's sensitive that to that as well and gives you exactly what you need. Now what I'd like you to do is imagine your ideal father figure different than your family of origin. It's not based on your actual father or father figure. It's not a correction for that person. It's not based on anyone you've known. This is an ideal father figure who's entirely imaginary. Someone perfectly suited to you. 
Notice how sensitively attuned he is to you, how he's able to track the subtlest changes in your mind states, and how he consistently responds to you in exactly the way that you need him to, in exactly the way that you've always wanted someone to. Notice that he's able to express physical affection for you in exactly uh, the way that you uh, need him to. If you need space, he gives you space. If you need him to come close, he comes close in an expression that's perfectly suited to you, in a way that you've always wanted someone to. Now what I'd like you to do is imagine the ideal place for you to grow up in. This could be based on the place that you actually grew up in, an expansion of that place, or something entirely imaginary. Let's see if you can imagine an ideal place for you as a young child to grow up in and thrive. So now imagine that you're in this ideal space for you to grow up in as a young child, as a young child, and that your ideal parent figures are there with you, and that they're supporting you in your play, in your exploration, in exactly the way that you need them to, in exactly the way that you've always wanted someone to. Notice how your ideal parent figures are with each other, how there's an ease of the expression of uh, physical affection, 
that there's a constant attention and checking in with each other, a constant uh, regulation and collaboration between them. But it's the same time notice that they never get so involved with themselves, they never get so caught in, up in themselves that they lose track of you. You always have a sense that their attention is on you and that if you need them, they would be instantly available to you. Notice that when you look at them, you have the, the sense, the, the deep feeling that you're the center of their lives. You're what matters to them most. There's no competition for this. There's no other siblings, no other people, no other engagements. These ideal parent figures are just for you. You don't have to share them with anyone. Notice that they're there to support your exploration, your play. They don't take it over, they don't control it, they don't recommend what you should be doing. They let you make all of those choices. If you need them to support you, if you need help, they're right there with you, but if you can do it on your own, they let you run with it. <coughs> they're there to support you. You're not there to perform for them. You don't have to take care of them in any way. They're there to take care of you. Notice because you feel uh, protected in this environment and that you feel the care that you're receiving is so reliable that being with your ideal parent figures leads to a deep felt sense of safety. You know that you're protected and because you're protected you're free to explore. Excuse me. Notice whenever you need to attune to them, they're right there paying attention 
and respond by attuning back to you. That you're free to be completely authentic with them because you feel so safe. And in being willing to uh, open yourself and express yourself authentically to them, you have a deep sense of being seen by them. In being seen by them, you feel loved, you feel accepted, you feel understood, you feel valued. Really take that in. Notice that being with them and feeling so safe and feeling seen by them that you also feel emotionally soothed by them, emotionally regulated by them. You know that you can count on them and that they can catch you whenever you need them to. And that makes, it, makes you free to explore Notice that when you attune to them, when you check in with them, whenever you need to, they light up with delight. You don't have to perform for them. You don't have to do what they want. Just being with you is the thing that they find so delightful. Just the way that you are is the thing that they find so delightful. When you look at them, you have this felt sense of being delightful to them. You have this felt sense of how deeply they love you. Really take that in. So now change the scene, lead your ideal parent figures along with you as you explore something that you find 
interesting, that you find meaningful, and notice how they're there supporting you. If you need space, they give you space. If you need them close, they come close. In every way that they can, they support your exploration, but you know clearly that you're in charge of it, that it's what, it's what has meaning to you that they're supporting. You don't have to do anything for them. They're there to take care of you. Make a deep impression of what it's like to have these ideal parent figures that you can see uh, <clears throat> when you look at them that you are the center of their lives. That that leads to that sense of safety that you feel, to being seen, to being emotionally soothed. Really make a deep impression of being someone who elicits, elicits delight in others, in your ideal parent figures. Really make a deep impression of what it's like to have complete support for your exploration, for the pursuit of what's meaningful to you. Really take that in. Now find your way out of there. I'll count from five to one. When I reach one, you'll be fully present and fully awake. Five, four, three, two, one. So any comments or questions on <clears throat> what we just did? Mm -hmm. You took away my sibling. I did. I was so happy. I put a sibling in there that I didn't have because I thought that would be the perfect thing to have. Uh, and then two seconds later, you took it away. <laughs> right. <clears throat> a lot of us grow up in environments with siblings, and we're taught that we have to share everything with them. And, uh, and so we don't ever really allow ourselves to, to, to understand what we want separately from that. Um, 
a lot of us were taught as children to pass on the things that we really wanted because we had to share uh, or there was a preferred sibling and we weren't it. Or even worse, we were the preferred sibling. <laughs> the last thing you want to be is a preferred sibling. And you just get murdered by all the other siblings who feel slighted. Someone else? You know what's going to happen if you have no questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. This is the evening portion of the entertainment, so you can ask questions. <laughs> now you have to reformulate it out of a statement. <laughs> Okay. Do you keep going or do you stop and kind of stay with that for a longer period, perhaps, than like moving on without that I would stay with it during the, the period of focusing just on that parent figure and then move on without it. Okay. Thank you. Nathan? I'm not sure I remember the formulated. Okay. Okay. We did. We spent the same amount of time, but just on idealizing the parent figures. Like visualizing what they look like? Well, imagining. imagining. Some, some people are not visual so that they don't ever visualize, the, they don't ever create a visual representation of them. And actually that's less important than the felt sense of them. Um, I know most people report that they're faceless or the faces are vague. Um, I think somebody here mentioned headless bodies. Um, <laughs> oh my. Um, like I said, mine are in, uh, basically line drawings with watercolor filled in. Sometimes they get a little bit fabricy, but not that much. And it's not the visual representation of them, but it's the felt sense of them that, that is important. <clears throat> that if I needed somebody to help me, that I could rely on somebody to help me. If you grow up in a, in a childhood where nobody ever helps you, then you, it's very hard for you to imagine what it would be like if somebody did help you. Uh, and it doesn't feel safe that somebody would help you. And so um, uh, that results in you not asking for help, which would be ready, readily available to you now if you needed it, right? And so that you end up having to try it alone it's very hard to be resilient alone. It's easier to be resilient in groups or to have people that you can rely on. Um, if you have to regulate, one of the things about <coughs> uh, disorganized people is they tend to emotionally regulate uh, in isolation, which is incredibly inefficient. Um, you know, it could take you six weeks to regulate something uh, that you could regulate in 20 minutes with a, with another human being. It's just really n not productive. Uh, is, that, is that like sort of, I have a friend that always is constantly saying that she needs like, alone time. She's always kind of going off on her 
Right. That. That's it. That's that's the regulating cell. Yeah. You know. How many seasons of Breaking Bad can you watch in one sitting because you're regulated while it's on, but as soon as it's over, you're dysregulated again? All of these kinds of uh, distractions that we use um, aren't regulating, really. <coughs> How safe do you feel? This is the vulnerability question. Can you just call somebody up and say, I've had a wreck of a day. I just need to bitch. You don't need to solve anything. Just let me rant. And do you have people that would say, Great, let's have it. Um, I, I work with uh, Stan Tacken, and uh, he says in moments like that, what you just you want the other person just to say, okay, let's go kill him. And uh, not that you ever would, mind you, right? But you just want that commitment from the other person. All right, let's go kill him. Yeah, uh, and then it's relieving, right? All of that. Uh, it's relieved because somebody sees you and somebody experiences you and accepts all of that. Is that making sense? Um, so it's just a question of putting it into practice. Well, you have to find the person who will do that. Right, you do. Not the person who will say, just let it go. Right, or I'm calling the police. <laughs> So, one of the things about building a, a, an act, act, active uh, social network is it's hard to do and it takes time. And it's a numbers game. And one of the things about people who are good at relationships is that they're in high demand and they're already committed. So there's also a timing element to it. If you meet somebody and you think they're really cool and might be a good friend but they're totally committed, just keep them on the back burner and keep in touch with them because everything is impermanent and they'll have a slot at some point. Yeah, totally. That's how it is. Um, you know, your dance card hopefully is full. And if it's not, then you have a slot available and you're looking around for somebody to put in the slot, right? And you just have to keep that in mind. Um, for A's or B's, that's how it is. You want to have a lot of simmering seas so that you can uh, turn up the heat when you when you have an opening. All right. So then, why do you need seas? Because you're going to need B's and A's. And where do they come from? They come from C's. Where do the C's come? They come from D's. And you you're constantly engaged in the activity of maintaining this uh, precious garden of a social life, right? Um, <clears throat> every day you're doing a little something to maintain it. Now I, I'm really busy uh, and I like to be really busy and, um, and so what I like to do is put people on the calendar on a weekly basis. So I have standing commitments with people. And uh, so, you know, and it's, it's flexible because things happen, but I would say that, you know, 30 times a year I have dinner with somebody on the same night, same person, same night, right? Mm -hmm. Or 40 times a year I have that encounter. Um, 
one of the things that you have to get used to is the ordinariness of it, right? Um, but after a while, it, it, because you you're in such better shape for your own exploration, it makes total sense why you would want to do that because you can go and do the things that you want to do and feel uh, secure that you'll be you'll be taken care of. So however you want to organize it makes sense. And everything changes. And so you, you have to be, you can't get your five slots filled and then sit back and relax <coughs> because everything's impermanent, right? Everything changes. You have to still be tending to it. You have to be engaging the world in order for this to happen. You know, one of the interesting things about, uh, and this is the last thing I'll say tonight, um, <clears throat> secure people f experience longing. They experience loneliness as a vital energy that propels them to connect to other people. Uh, if a secure person feels lonely, they call somebody up. That's their instinct. I'm lonely. I need to call somebody and get together. If you're insecure in your attachment, you tend to experience longing or loneliness as uh, sadness and uh, um, shame on one hand or guilt and fear on the other hand. And so it isn't this easy, flowing, vital energy that just propels you to connect. Oh, I'm lonely. I better call somebody. You're not available. I'll call somebody else. Call somebody else. Call somebody. Oh, you're free. Great. Let's go. Right? That's the kind of, <clears throat> you don't take it personally, you have resilience, uh, and, and you can respond to the conditions of the present moment because of that. But if you're insecure in your attachment and you call somebody up and they reject you, you take it personally and you turn it into a, a problem of you that nobody will want, and then you stop there and you're disconnected and the loneliness becomes a burden or the longing becomes a burden. If you grew up and you, you became a dismissing adult, when you experience longing, it, you, you're not experiencing this pure energy of the desire to connect. You're experiencing great, terrible sadness. And if you, if, uh, because your experience of longing was that uh, I'm going to go get rejected, that's how you experience it. Great, I'm going to go get rejected. Sadness. <clears throat> But then if you got shamed for um, needing to connect to your caregivers, then the terrible sadness turns into this corrosive shame and you will do anything to avoid it. So connecting to people is the last thing you want to do because it throws you into that experience. <clears throat> and if you're preoccupied, uh, it's uh, fear and guilt tend to be the thing. You're frightened of connecting because you don't know what burden your caregiver is going to put on you for taking care of them. <clears throat> so you think, I have this longing to connect, but I don't want to connect to my caregiver because I'll just end up having to take care of them and they won't take care of me. And then <clears throat> uh, if you connect to them because you need them to take care of you and instead they flip it and demand that you take care of them, instead and you don't want to do it, they pile on the guilt that you're not taking care of them so that you have these confusions about 
what that is. So partly what we want to do here then, of course, is repair it so that the longing is experienced as this pleasant energy that leads to connection, leads to mutual care, leads to delight. Wouldn't it be great if you felt longing, if you felt a little bit of loneliness and you called somebody up and they were delighted to hear from you? <laughs> How would that be? That's actually where we're trying to go. All right. 